Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we'll sit down with some fans who are determined to keep professional baseball in Oakland. Instead of the A's, Oakland fans may soon be rooting for the B's. And we'll discuss Safeway's decision to close its Fillmore location and delve into what that closure might mean for that community with its history of redlining and gentrification. Plus, we'll meet San Francisco's Willard Harris, who's going strong at age 104. But first, this news. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Later on in the hour, we're going to discuss Safeway's announcement today that after threatening to close its store in San Francisco's historic Fillmore District, the company will instead postpone that closure, which is nonetheless slated to go forward in January of 2025. So what lies ahead for this area, which is home to many seniors and a dwindling African-American population? And finally, at the end of the show, we're going to hear from a very special centenarian about how she continues to stay active, maintain friendships, and keep the laughter going at the age of 104. But first, the Oakland Athletics may be headed to Las Vegas, but a group of fans is determined to keep professional baseball in Oakland. For years, Oakland politicians and baseball fans alike worked hard to keep the athletics from moving, but that prospect did seem to dim after this past November when the owners of the 30 Major League Baseball teams voted unanimously to allow the athletics owners to move the team from Oakland to Las Vegas. But all is not lost for Oakland baseball fans. Dozens of area fans led by a pair of high school friends have joined forces to start the Oakland Ballers, also known as the Bees. They'll play their first game this summer wearing green and gold, just like the A's. And we're so glad to be joined tonight by one of the team's co-founders and its chief experience officer, Brian Carmel. Brian, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you. Great to be here. And we're also joined by Jorge Leon, president of the Oakland 68s, a nonprofit Oakland fan group. Thanks for joining us, Jorge. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Well, Brian, let me start with you. Let's talk about your history as an Oakland A's fan. How did this all start for you? Sure. Yeah. So lifelong uh, major, major East Bay sports fan, baseball especially, grew up, you know, going to games at the Coliseum. Met Paul Friedman, my co-founder in high school, and you know a lot of our friendship early on was forged by going to games together at the Coliseum. And so we've been watching what's been unfolding, especially over the last couple of years, which really kind of culminated for us beginning of the summer around June when it became summer of 2023, when it became clear to us that it seemed like the A's were leaving, like for real after many, many years of speculation, are they staying, are they going, are they building a new stadium? And it seemed like the Las Vegas thing was starting to materialize. And um, at the same time, a lot was being said about Oakland and what it means that, you know, you know, first the, the Raiders left twice, then the Warriors moved across town, and now the A's were leaving. And a lot of the chatter was like, well, maybe Oakland's not a pro sports team. Um, maybe Oakland just can't get anything done. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot being said that maybe Oakland, you know, isn't 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 worthy. Yeah. Um, and we just reject that full stop. And, you know, we're very inspired by what Jorge and, you know, his organization, the 68s, the last dive bar um, and other fan groups did in mobilizing the movement to try to compel uh, the A's ownership to sell the team with the reverse boycott. Mm-hmm. Um 
we 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 didn't know if ultimately that was going to work and we sort of were reading the tea leaves and thinking well maybe the a's are actually going to leave and what will that mean this can't be the last chapter for baseball in oakland and that's when we came up with this idea why don't we start a new team yeah so that that that's how the ballers formed well it's been quite a story of real fan resistance to the a's ownership and you called out jorge leon and uh the oakland 68s jorge what about you what's your origin story as an a's fan oh man Goes way back, probably 1991, 92, uh, the old Coliseum, you know. My dad used to take me. We used to live in uh, deep east Oakland, so we would take BART, you know, San Andrew BART Station to the Coliseum, walking through the BART Bridge, and then peeking in through the, to the green fencing. It was amazing. It was like I, I remember seeing Mark McGuire, Dennis Eckersley, uh, Ricky Henderson warming up, and it was just it just blew me away, you know. It's like a palace. That's yeah. what I tell people. Well, those great teams back then won the World Series in uh, 1989, of course, being the San Francisco Giants. Uh, went to the World Series three times in a row. I think I grew up in that similar era, and it just leaves an impression on you at that age. You get that lifelong connection to a team that so many sports fans, I think, can, can relate to. Brian, so I, I want to pick up where you left off, talking about how you got this idea to start a new team. I mean, what are the mechanics of starting a new team? How did you go about conceptualizing how you would get this done? Um, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. We've been kind of figuring it out as we go. Um, you know, luckily Paul, my partner has a really, really great track record building successful businesses from sort of a seed of an idea that have become, you know, really, um, healthy organizations that are financially profitable and have a a positive social impact in communities. So leaning on his expertise in building businesses um, my background is much more storytelling. And at the same time, we recognize that this was building a business, but this was also telling a story, the story of what baseball, what the next chapter of baseball is in Oakland. So we've just been, you know, bringing in people uh, who are experts in their class to sort of help us along the way. And the good news is that I think that because the idea is strong and because it's grounded in core beliefs that baseball teams and sports organizations belong to communities, people have just gotten on board and it's 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 been a groundswell of support. And Brian, talk about the team. Uh, what league is it going to be playing in? How are fans going to be able to to watch them? Can you give us more details about the Oakland Ballers or the Bees? Yes. Yeah, so we're joining the Pioneer League. The Pioneer League is um, a an innovation baseball league. It's actually been around since 1939. It's a historic league. Ten teams. So the the Ballers are the eleventh team. It's an expansion franchise. The other teams are all in the Rockies. So they're in Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and um, what am I forgetting? Utah. So we're the, fir- we're the first West Coast expansion team. And um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a development league. It's a lot, of, a lot of players that have come through there go on to have major, major league careers. Cody Bellinger was in the Pioneer League. You know, Cal Ripken, Ryan Sandberg. So, you know, it's a it's a it's legit baseball. Uh, one of my favorite things about the league is there's a knockout round. So after nine innings, if there's a tie doesn't go into extra innings, there's like a home run derby to determine like like what we see in soccer to determine who wins the game. So we, you know, looked at the landscape of what leagues would take us and um, started conversations with a few different leagues. And we we identified the Pioneer League early on as 
you know, ha- being visionaries in terms of trying to innovate the game of baseball. And we really liked that. And also, you know, they were willing to let us in. Yeah. Well, so Jorge, you started the Oakland 68s, as we mentioned. And it sounds like it's really the mission of the organization to preserve the fanaticism of the Oakland A's fan base. Where are you at in terms of the ballers? And how do you see that fitting into what's happening right now with the A's? Yeah, that's right, man. I, you know, I appreciate Paul and Brian reaching out to us pretty early on and said, hey, you know, we have this idea. You know, we've, we've always, uh, um, you know, considered ourselves, you know, community first and then the team. And I think that them having those values, right, you know, when we first met, they they said, this is what we want, this is what we believe in. And sure enough, it was like, you know, common sense to just kind of lean with them. You know, that's what we've always been wanting with the A's. So now we have the B's and, and you know, we have the roots as well, the roots and soul. And it was easy to just kind of transfer our fanatism to them and keep it alive. You know, I've always said that. Someone would, you know, would step up and and keep professional uh, baseball going. And I didn't think it was going to be this fast. So I appreciate them, you know. And have you given up on the A's yet? What is is your feeling about how likely it is that they're actually going to leave the Bay Area? You know, we we never quit. Oakland never quits, right? So we still fine, you know, until the end. You know, we're going to make them uh, regret leaving. And whether that's stopping it, I don't know if we can stop it. Whether it's you know prolonging it, delaying it in some way or some fashion, then that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, we in, in the perfect world we would want them to sell to a local buyer, and then you know both the B's and the A's can thrive in this market because we do believe that you know we just want to be loved and we will show up for the community. Well, on this point, I know you're talking about or you're organizing uh, Oakland A's Fans Fest. Usually, the team organizes a fan fest. The team's not doing anything for the fans this year, but can you talk about what you're organizing instead? Yeah, so Fans Fest, February uh, 24th, you know, 11 to 4 p.m. Uh, we're organizing our second one. <laughs> the, the other one, you know, the A's re- didn't want to do anything, so we just took it upon us, like Oakland always does. You know, we 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 do things our way, so that's what we're doing, and we're showcasing. We're showcasing Oakland sports, and you know the bees are going to be involved. The Oakland Roots, Oakland Soul, OAL, the Oakland Athletic League—they're going to be involved. Uh, we reached out to the Spiders, the, the Bay Area Fal- Falcons are going to come out there. So it's just Oakland love for the Oakland teams to make sure that you know we don't we don't forget about them. And Brian, you talked a little bit about some of the details of the Pioneer League for the bees. Can you talk about? Where they're going to be playing this summer? It sounds like they're going to be at Laney College. Uh, talk about that, and what are the long-term plans for where the team might play? And I know there was an effort that you put forward to try to get them to play in the Coliseum that the A's vetoed. So, also curious if you could talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So that happened, um, which was uh, a little disappointing. We, we that was for one game, not for the entire season. The A's are going to be playing in the Oakland Coliseum in 2024. Um, and obviously beyond 2024, I don't, I don't think anybody knows at this point for us. Um, we identified Laney early on as kind of a, as a year one or year one and two, um, home for us. And we're still, we're still working on that. And, um, I think that we will be able to firmly say where we're going to be playing around fans fest. Uh, Jorge said it's February 24th. And at that point we can start, you know, selling tickets and, uh, and explaining to people, where 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 they'll be seeing the ballers uh, in the 2024 season? And, um, yeah. And Jorge, just uh, follow up on the the ballers here. Do you think that if the ballers can demonstrate 
fan passion and success, do you think that could help with the sort of strategy to keep the A's MLB team in Oakland? Heck yeah. You know, we've, I've, I've always been a strong believer, our group, that, you know, we also have a responsibility to, to show up as a community to, to the people that, that shows us love. So um, I think that that's no question. We'll, we'll show up for the bees and, 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 you know, exemplify that what, what MLB is going to miss out on this, you know. And Brian, uh, just to ask a little bit of the details of the team here, how's the roster and the management of the team taking shape right now? Uh, it's going great. I think we've signed about 10 to 12 players out of what is a, you know, a 30, 30 person roster. We've brought in Don Wakamatsu as our, uh, our, as our head of baseball. Don is amazing. We're learning so much from him every day. You know, uh, he, he is a local guy, came up, went to Hayward High School, um, played in the major leagues, was the first Asian-American manager in major league history for the for the Mariners. And th- Don's brought in a great staff, a great coaching staff. Micah Franklin, another local guy, came up through San Francisco, another big leaguer, um, bit of a hitting guru. Mike is going to be our manager. Uh, we just announced that JT Snow is going to be on our coaching staff. Yeah. You know, obviously, obviously Bay Area legend, Ray King. Another major league pitcher. He's our pitching pitching coach. So, you know, uh, Aaron Miles. We've brought we've got a very legit coaching staff at this point, and what what that's done is is allowed us to go out to the best players out there and you know show how that we're that we're legit, incredible, and they all turns out want to come play in Oakland. So some uh, Bay Area major league talent that's uh, that's going to be on the team. Jorge, I'm going to give you the last word here because we've got to wrap up. As a longtime Oakland baseball super fan, what's some of the advice that you've given to Brian and, and his colleagues in getting the ballers going? Just involve the community because the community knows what's right. The community knows first and foremost what to you know what to expect and and just keep in touch and and always show them love. Love always wins. Well, more power to both of you guys. We're going to have to leave it there. Brian Carmel, Oakland Ballers co-founder and chief experience officer and Jorge Leon, president of the fan group, the Oakland 68s. Thanks so much for being here to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ethan. And coming up next, we're going to talk about Safeway's decision to close its Fillmore location and the breaking news that the closure has been postponed and what it all means for the surrounding community. So stay with us. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. A Half Moon Bay nonprofit is helping an impacted community of farm workers. Desde el año pasado que que estaba el COVID, después vinieron los incendios, después de los incendios vino las inundaciones al principio de año, la masacre. There was COVID, then came the fires. After the fires, the flooding, and then the massacre. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Tune in to KALW tonight at 7. It's the broadcast of a town hall conversation about the future of public education. How are we going to use our limited resources to have the most impact on student outcomes? It really becomes then a community conversation about what we're prioritizing, what we're valuing. A panel discussion including San Francisco Unified School District Superintendent Matt Wayne. That's tonight at 7, only here on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area, 91.7 FM and KALW.org. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be part of this next conversation about Safeway's announcement that it would close its store on Webster Street in the Fillmore District. Been in breaking news today. The store announced it will stay open until next January, but many key questions remain. So if you live in the Fillmore, how did you feel when you heard the store was slated to close 
How does this decision by Safeway fit into the larger picture of San Francisco's struggles with retail theft and store closures and our city's dire need for more housing? Give us a call. You can join us at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. So as I mentioned, there was breaking news from San Francisco's Fillmore District today. A Safeway announced to the relief of many residents that it was postponing its plans to close its store on Webster Street, otherwise slated to happen this March and just two months from now. The store has been operating in the community for 40 years. It's the only full-service grocery store located in the neighborhood while also housing a bank and a pharmacy there. The property is being sold to Align Real Estate, which plans to build a mixed-use development at the location. And Following this announcement, residents reacted quickly, mostly with dismay, and they appear to have convinced Safeway to reverse its decision or at least postpone it with the closure now planned for January of next year, as I mentioned. So here tonight to help us unpack the still planned but delayed closure and what that will mean for the community, I'm very pleased to be joined by Pia Harris, who is Interim Chief Operating Officer of the San Francisco Housing Development Corporation, a longtime Fillmore resident. Pia is also a founding member of the Fillmore Merchants and Neighborhood Collaborative and the Fillmore and Japantown for Justice Coalition. So welcome to State of the Bay, Pia. Thank you for having me. Glad you could join us. And we're also joined by Dean Preston, supervisor for San Francisco's District 5, which includes the Fillmore. Supervisor Preston is a tenant's rights attorney, tenant rights attorney, and one of California's leading affordable housing advocates. Thank you for joining us, Supervisor Preston. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Pia, let me start with you. Just talk about how long you've lived in the Fillmore and how the neighborhood has changed in the years since you moved there. Oh, well, I've lived there for over uh, 25 years, uh, graduated from George Washington High School and went to Galileo. Um, and, you know, for the African-American community, of course, you know, we've seen the numbers change as well as the amount of uh, African-American businesses that we had in the neighborhood. Um, you know, Safeway, we have the Heritage Center that was built and, you know, the Fillmore Center and other um apartments that were meant to be uh, for low income that ended up not being for low income. And, you know, gentrification is real, you know, like it is in other places as well. So uh, definitely noticing the changes over the years uh, with the African-American community in particular, you know, moving out um, over over time and dwindling down. And Pia, just to stick with you on this, how did you feel when you heard that the Safeway would be closing? Maybe if you could talk a little bit about the importance of that particular grocery store for the neighborhood. Yeah, it kind of felt like here we go again. You know, here's something that is a necessity um, in the neighborhood for our seniors and for our community, especially the lower income community, being replaced by more housing that we can't afford um, was our first concern. And of course, thinking about the seniors uh, in the neighborhood and how they all walk to that store and what are they going to do now for healthy meals? Um, you know, worried about them having to go to McDonald's or, you know, settle for something quick because they just don't have access to healthy meals is definitely one of the greatest concerns, as well as being a business owner. And, you know, SFHCC has opened up in the black retail space in the neighborhood, worried about, you know, the gender, uh, you know, the traffic 
that'll be changed as far as foot traffic goes for our businesses in the neighborhood if there's, you know, not that that safe way mm-hmm. that everyone comes to. Yeah. Well, Supervisor Preston, let me turn to you. You attended community meetings following Safeway's announcement. What did you hear from the people living there about how this closure would affect them? Just teeing off of what Pia was describing. Well, everyone's was saying the same thing, which is feeling really hurt by the decision, really angry and very worried about what closing the the only full service grocery store in the Fillmore, uh, what kind of impact that would have on all residents, but especially on seniors and on families and and uh, and the most vulnerable residents of the community. So. Um, you know, it, it, it was not only the the concern about losing the only major grocery store in the neighborhood, it was also how they did it. Like there was not a single community meeting. Um, the announcement wasn't that they were going to close in six months or a year. It was that they're going to close in less than 60 days. Um, and anyone who knows anything about the history of the neighborhood knows that this was just re-inflicting wounds from the redevelopment era in which this kind of decision-making happened, in which communities were just, you know, neighborhood businesses um, and residents were dis- were, were displaced. And, and you know, to, to announce it in this way was just a real slap in the face uh, to the community. And, and we, you know, we have, I deal with a lot of issues as supervisor for, for a district that's very diverse, has a range of views on everything. Uh, it, it, it is rare that there is an issue where everyone, people stopping me in the streets, people calling, people emailing, was saying the same thing. How dare Safeway do this? How could they possibly close it? And how could they do it without even talking to the community and on less than 60 days notice? So we were proud to immediately issue a pretty strong statement, introduce a resolution, reach out uh, and push with Safeway and with the site buyer, and basically just emphasize the point that it doesn't have to be done this way. There's a better way to do it. Uh, and we're really, really pleased with the news today that Safeway's uh, not going to close in March like they were planning, but instead it's going to be open till at least January 2025. Well, Supervisor Preston, just before we talk about that announcement, because I think there is uh, a lot to discuss there, I'm curious, what did you hear from Safeway about why they wanted to close the store in the first place? Yeah, this is part of the problem. I mean, they didn't, If you know, if they're having a financial issue or something else, they could have laid it out. They could have talked to the community. They could have met with our office. I mean, we've met with Safeway on other issues uh, related to the parking lot, related to things, you know, of concern in the neighborhood. They've never said they were going to close. You know, it, it, this just came out of nowhere. And so we were, everyone's left to guess. Uh, they didn't provide a lot of information. Um, and of course, you know, in this climate, anytime any store closes, everyone immediately uh, wants to jump to the conclusion it's because of some surge in crime. And uh, I have no idea if they, if they would claim that or not. But <laughs> but regardless, um, they never explained it to anyone or or to, to our office. So, um, and we were pretty surprised, you know, we reached out to Safeway. They didn't provide us much information. Uh, they were not very transparent. Uh, we conveyed the community's uh, demand, which came uh, out of a community meeting over at Third Baptist uh, Church, in, in which folks really wanted to have a meeting with Safeway. So we conveyed that over to Safeway. Uh, will you come meet with the community? No commitments to, to this day. No commitments 
uh, to meet uh, with the community. And so uh, everyone's left to guess, uh, you know, and, and look, when we first started pushing back, people say, as often as the case when you're dealing with a huge corporate conglomerate, well, they can do whatever they want. They're a private business. And I'm sorry, like it doesn't work that way in San Francisco and, and or it shouldn't. Um, and they're answerable to the community that they serve and have profited off of. Uh, for many decades, um, and there's a right way and a wrong way uh, to exit that business, uh, and they were on the wrong path, and hopefully now they're on the right path. Doesn't mean they have to stay in business forever, but they need to work with the community, work with city leaders, and come up with a plan here, a transition plan that doesn't leave seniors and kids and 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 other neighbors uh, in Japantown, in the Fillmore, across the Western Edition with nowhere to get affordable groceries. Mm -hmm. That is not acceptable, and uh, we're glad that at mm -hmm. least they're starting to see the light. And Pia, Supervisor Preston, points out that we don't actually know from Safeway why they're wanting to close the store, but we do know that the store did struggle a lot over the past year. They were blasting classical music to deter people from loitering in the parking lot. They had to shut down their self-checkout kiosk to reduce theft. So there's certainly a lot of speculation that crime didn't exactly help this store. I'm just curious, P, if you, if you wanted to weigh in on your take about what the economics of the store might be and what the trends in San Francisco might have been that could have potentially contributed to this decision. You know, I agree with the supervisor. I think that everyone jumps to the conclusion that it's always because of crime, um, but they had it built like a fort. You know, they just spent all that money to update it where theft is so, it was so hard. Everything's locked up. You can't get out of it without scanning a receipt. So that's why we were so surprised that they were closing because they literally just did all of these upgrades in the last couple of months. And then all of a sudden, without any notice, they said that they were closing. So I really don't think that it had anything to do with the crime or anything else, you know, um, and, and as well as I know how busy they are. If you sit outside of Safeway right now, you're going to see a ton of foot traffic. The parking lot is full. Um, you'll see a bunch of seniors pushing their carts, you know, in there because that, that's a Safeway within walking distance. So I just that's a, a part of like why them not discussing it with the community and not letting us know uh, if they needed any support. Um, as supervisor said, you know, there's been plenty of community meetings to discuss the parking lot, to discuss safety and things like that, where this could have been addressed, um, where it has not been. So mm -hmm. I, I would say that, you know, I, I don't think it has to do with crime being that they just upgraded, you know, with all of these, uh, this new technology that was deterring that. And, and Supervisor it, Preston, you talked about now with this announcement, it's probably in response to the community uh, outrage over this, or at least the dismay and the uh, upset about this closure. I'm curious what your take is on why the store decided to postpone it. Did you hear anything from Safeway about this, or do you have any theories as to what motivated the postponement? Oh, I, yeah. Look, I think the the, the only real theory and correct one uh, is it was the unified pushback from the community. I mean, you, we had every major leader in Japantown, every major leader in the Fillmore and hundreds of residents and folks who rely on Safeway pushing back. We had a, I saw a major piece over the weekend in the San Francisco Chronicle written by uh, Justin Phillips, really uh, connecting the dots of the history of redevelopment and racist policy with what was happening here. And, and so it was that community pushback. I mean, everyone's always quick to, you know, want to 
you know, assume it was one person or elected officials or or whatever, uh, you know, whoever's in front of the microphone. But this was this was a community win, and I think should send a message to Safeway and to any buyer of this property um, that they this is not going to be the plan for the site cannot be developed in back rooms in city hall or in corporate boardrooms like they got to come and and show some respect mm-hmm. to the community uh, that's relied on safeway for mm-hmm. decades um and if i could just say you know one other thing about when we were talking about you know the sort of speculation as a crime other things that i just want to point out here because it's it's a i think a, a sore point certainly for me and for a lot of community members i talk to when when you look at the coverage uh, when something closes in other neighborhoods, particularly in white neighborhoods and 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 uh, higher income neighborhoods, uh, people don't talk about the stores as being like troubled and blighted and so forth. Whenever they talk about the Safeway in, in every headline in major papers, they call this the troubled Safeway. And so, I, you know, like I'm not going to deny it is absolutely true that there are challenges for any major retailer right now in San Francisco. I'm not here to deny that reality of doing business in our city or in any major city in this country. But I also think it's really important that when folks see those headlines, they realize like this isn't closing because it's some troubled, horrible place like that. That is part of a history in our city. That is how redevelopment that is what drove it, it was declaring um black neighborhoods as blighted so that you could justify demolishing the community with promises of of building some new uh shiny thing right there's a long history of that so it 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 was not just the decision to to shut this down and doing it on short notice but even the way this is covered mm-hmm. uh and demeaning uh you know this uh essential resource in the community mm-hmm. um that you know the even just the language being used about it um, often makes a lot of assumptions and repeats a lot of the historical harms. Yeah, definitely a very deep history in, in that neighborhood of, uh, of residents not being listened to or treated with respect. If you're just joining us, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing how the Fillmore Safeway closing, which is now postponed until January of next year, will impact the neighborhood with Fillmore resident Pia Harris and also District 5 Supervisor Dean Preston. And we do want to hear from you. If you live in the neighborhood, what does that Safeway mean to you? How do you think the closing fits into the larger picture of San Francisco's struggles to hold on to the retail, given all the store closures that we've seen? And if you work, shop, or dine in the Fillmore, we want to hear from you how you think it might change the area when the Safeway ultimately does close, as it is now slated to do next January. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us with questions at stateofthebay at org. Well, Pia, we've talked about how the store is now postponed to close in, in January of next year. And one of the arguments that we heard from, I believe, from Safeway uh, before their announcement today of the postponement was that there's a Trader Joe's coming soon, uh, slated to open at f- uh, 555 Fulton Street in Hayes Valley. Is that near enough to make a difference if and when the Safeway does close to have a, that Trader Joe's there? I don't think so. That's just like saying there's a Molly Stone up the street. You know, (laughs) these are very different uh, store chains. And again, we're thinking about, you know, a lower income uh, uh, 
crowd as well as the seniors that may not have transportation to get to that area. And it's very hard as a senior to travel by yourself, let alone carrying grocery bags. Uh, so as I said, you know, there's about eight senior buildings within range. There's a bunch of low-income housing as well within range. You know, what about these people that cannot afford cars and, you know, need to feed their families? It's just really, really detrimental to have healthy food options in the neighborhood that are close by and that just isn't in walking distance uh, nor uh, does it have everything that you need like a pharmacy and things that are very important to our community and our seniors. And Supervisor Preston, one of the plans for this redevelopment is to add more housing. And that's something that our city really sorely needs. We obviously have a homelessness crisis. We have people who are very housing insecure, people who are spending a huge percentage of their incomes on housing. It's it's really a humanitarian crisis at this point. So how do you respond to that idea that you know it's not great to lose a grocery store but we're in such desperate need of housing that you know the families that would benefit from living at this site you know that that's more important than than potentially having a, a grocery store particularly if this Trader Joe's is is coming in nearby what do you make of that argument well we, we it's a false choice i mean we've made very clear from the start there's absolutely no reason that we could not have both a grocery store and housing on the site and this is a huge multi-acre lot uh, we have plenty of examples of housing development with a grocery store in the ground floor this is my understanding is the plans here um, we don't know a lot of details, but we know it would have ground floor retail. So um, this part of our objection to shutting the Safeway down so quickly is this lot, nothing's going to be developed anytime soon here. It's going to take a significant amount of time. So we should keep the Safeway open as long as possible. And then when there's a development plan that the community is involved in uh, with this, you know, community benefits that are sufficient to the community, uh, then, then uh, you know, at some point, It'll close, you know, a grocery store will close down and hopefully you do some kind of phase development where you don't have a long delay uh, when you open a new grocery store. Is that Safeway? Is that some other entity? Who knows? Right. Um, but there, there's no reason there can't be both housing and a grocery store on this site. But I want to you know, circle back to a point Pia made in the beginning, which was, you know, around is this housing nobody in the neighborhood can afford so I know that it's become, you know, there's sort of an attempt often uh, by the real estate industry to push as if all housing is is the same thing. And it's not. Right. And so is this going to be, a, you know, 500 or 1000 luxury housing units that 99 uh, percent of the Fillmore cannot afford to, to live in? Or is this going to contain all or a significant number of affordable homes? So I'm looking forward to hearing more about what the development plans are. I think housing on this lot, absolutely. A grocery store on this lot, absolutely. Um, but we gotta hear what the details are and make sure it's something that serves and benefits the community, not just a profit center for big developers. Well, and Supervisor Preston, do you know if Safeway is still planning to sell to Align Real Estate given their announcement today? It's our understanding they haven't announced uh, any change in those plans. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I've talked. I talked with the attorney for Align Real Estate, uh, they are in the due diligence process. So the property has not changed hands um, and he did not uh, provide uh, details, uh, nor have they agreed to uh, meet with the community. So we'll learn more from Align, um, but 
But, uh, you know, at this point, uh, we don't have the details of their plan beyond the little bit that's been reported in the media. And Pia, on this issue of housing, how does how do you think a lot of the community leaders in the Fillmore feel about having new housing development come in? Is that something that people do want to see or is there a lot of, you know, sort of don't build it in my backyard kind of sentiment there? I think it is bringing up that old trauma of redevelopment again. You know, as the supervisor said, uh, we've had other uh, housing being built in the neighborhood that uh, has become unaccessible to the community and unaffordable. So, again, you know, what is that and what kind of housing is that? You know, who will... Uh, be the kind of retailers that they have move into this space. You know, at SFHDC, we are helping a bunch of African-American businesses. We had 67 sign up that are looking for locations. Can we guarantee that some of that empty space goes back to the community to kind of offset what has happened in redevelopment? Um, I think that any time that they talk about uh, building new housing, it triggers, you know, that redevelopment phase on, you know, promises that are made and not kept. And then the african American community and lower income community is actually pushed out. Um, And that definitely triggered that with this because they didn't give us any notice and we didn't have anything to do with any of the planning. Um, And that has happened when we have been a part of the planning. So, of course, the route that they went is very concerning for the community Mm -hmm. and not in a good way. And both of you have mentioned redevelopment and Supervisor Preston. You've, you've talked about the, the history of, of redevelopment there. And, of course, redevelopment was a government plan, right? That was the government coming in and allowing uh, private developers to bulldoze uh, neighborhoods like, you know, what we've seen throughout the Bay Area, especially in San Francisco in this area. But, you know, at the same time, if Safeway doesn't really want to operate a business that maybe isn't making as much money for itself as it might if they could sell to a developer, how does a government essentially force – a a, a company like Safeway to keep operating a, a private business. I mean, it's it's kind of an irony, given that we're essentially asking for government intervention when it was government intervention under redevelopment that caused a lot of this inequity. Yeah, and government has a lot of work to do to undo the harms of uh, redevelopment. I mean, and and uh, you know, it's not as if government is not involved in you know all of the push for upzoning that has dramatically increased the value of the land. Uh, is part of the reason that you have uh, a Safeway owner uh, seeing it as more um, profitable to to sell uh, for uh, market rate housing and unaffordable housing development. Um, you know, so we we continue to have government policies uh, that incentivize real estate speculation, and at the same time, we need to balance that out by leaning in as government to to advocate for what the community actually wants. Like, and, and you know, this lot's interesting, right? This is the heart of the Fillmore. This is an extremely dense neighborhood. I mean, when Pia talked about the challenges for people to, you know, go to a, na- a grocery store in another neighborhood, I mean, part of that is because so many people don't own cars that, you know, and a lot of your listeners may be in parts of town. Well, this isn't the case. Like, this is dense urban living, right? I'm very, I think it's, Great that 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 you know so many folks uh, are walking in their neighborhood and so forth, but they, but you know this is a very dense 
area. A lot of people are walking to this uh, grocery store. And if we have the opportunity to build more, we should certainly be exploring every option to be building for the people who live in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and people who are displaced from the neighborhood, right? We have, you know, we have thousands of people who could return to the film art. If we're really going to do high density development, uh, that should be on the table. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen here, but there needs to be a conversation about mm -hmm. Uh, what are we building and not just oversimplify it and just say, well, any development's good and therefore, even if it doesn't serve the community, you just have to deal with it. Like I think our role and certainly mine as an elected official is to not just do what developers and others want us to do, but to intervene on behalf of residents and push them to be more responsive uh, to the community needs. We've got a couple of emails in, a uh, pretty long email from Rick in Citrus Heights, which I'll summarize. He says, even though I don't live in the Fillmore District, I know San Francisco well as I'm a patient at the University of California, San Francisco. I think the issues are attributable to the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act, which promotes redlining and housing discrimination. And another email from Wendy in San Francisco says, she says, I live nearby and always notice how big the parking lot is at the Safeway. Maybe some of that could be used for housing and other development. So having a, uh, a bit of a compromise there. Uh, Supervisor Preston, I know you've organized a rally uh, for tomorrow to demand that Safeway and any buyer involved in the community uh, involve the community in making plans for the site and ensuring that a grocery store is part of a new development. Can you talk about what you want to see at that rally? Yeah, absolutely. And look, we when we planned this rally, uh, we thought it was going to be to uh, to to get them in in part to reverse their plans, and they've done that with the news today. Um, and so it's great that that pressure is off. One great thing about the uh, them uh, reversing course and agreeing to stay open through next year, uh, through January 2025, it gives us the time. Right. For them to meet with the community, for city leaders and stakeholders and our office and the mayor and her departments and and community leaders like you know, Pia and, 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 and the whole coalition of folks who have been speaking out about this to actually meet and talk about what what we want there. I see absolutely no reason that we cannot have a grocery store among other businesses on that site, mm -hmm. along with housing on that site and if parking is needed you move that underground i mean this this is mm -hmm. absolutely doable this is a huge lot mm -hmm. but it's also going to be it's it's in the heart of the fillmore and it, as pia noted earlier it impacts the other businesses around and all the other great stuff that uh, hdc and pia and and others have been working on mm -hmm. with uh, city officials and our office to to open new businesses to revitalize the fillmore heritage center right what happens on this site is going to have a huge impact on uh, economic development and opportunity in the neighborhood. And we've got to have a plan that the community supports and that benefits the community. And I, I will just say that I am not receptive and I'll, I sometimes will get criticized for this, but I'm not receptive to the arguments. People say, well, this is a private property. This is a private business so we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Uh, that's not how it works. Yeah. There's well, a balance. Let me, give Pia, a balance let me give Pia the last word because we're just got to wrap now. So Pia, final question for you. If you could talk to Safeway, what would be your message here? 
I would say, uh, you know, just really think about the community and the impact that it's going to have and, and who it'll affect. And, you know, think about the generations. You know, my I have a, a daughter that's 24 years old that has gone to that Safeway her whole entire life. My mother's in her 70s. She goes to that, that Safeway almost every single day. Just really consider the impact and, mm-hmm. and on the traumatized community yeah. that this is going to do. Yeah, well, that, we're, I, I think it's a wonderful sentiment to leave it at. I hope they listen and we're gonna have to leave it there but pia harris longtime fillmore resident interim chief operating officer of the san francisco housing development corporation thank you so much for joining us as well as district five supervisor dean preston thank you both so much thank you thank you and coming up after the break we'll meet centenarian willard harris we'll be right back Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. A Half Moon Bay nonprofit is helping an impacted community of farm workers. Desde el año pasado que que estaba el COVID, después vinieron los incendios, después de los incendios vino las inundaciones al principio de año, la masacre. There was COVID, then came the fires. After the fires, the flooding, and then the massacre. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Tune in to KALW tonight at 7. It's the broadcast of a town hall conversation about the future of public education. How are we going to use our limited resources to have the most impact on student outcomes? It really becomes then a community conversation about what we're prioritizing, what we're valuing. A panel discussion including San Francisco Unified School District Superintendent Matt Wayne. That's tonight at 7, only here on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area, 91.7 FM and KALW.org. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm guest host Sarah Ladipo-Manika. What's your secret? That's a question that Willard Harris has been asked countless times, and it's no surprise Willard recently celebrated her 104th birthday, and she's still going strong. In this world of advanced medicine and artificial intelligence, so many of us are searching for the secret to a long and healthy life. According to projections from the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of Americans living to 100 and older is expected to quadruple over the next three decades. But what should we do to maximize our chances of reaching that golden age? And what will it look and feel like when we get there? Last week, I sat down with my good friend Willard Harris, and while she didn't reveal the magical secret to aging well, she did share details about her life, her perspective, and her advice on how to embrace life at any age. And before we even got started on the formal interview, when I asked what her favorite song was, she started to sing. Yes. Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Cause the Bible tells me so. Faith is important to Willard, as you will hear later. But first, let me paint a picture for you. Willard is a petite woman with the most radiant of smiles. She wears her hair in a neat afro, and is partial to stylish, exuberant clothing. Looking at her, you would never guess her age. She told me about her background and education. I 
was born in Chicago, Illinois, but I was raised in Jackson, Tennessee. I left home when I was 18 years of age and went to Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, where I received my RN diploma. I left there and went to the University of Tennessee and received a bachelor's degree and on to New York City, where I received a master's degree in nursing administration at NYU. Willard's education might help explain her longevity. In general, black Americans have a lower life expectancy than white Americans. But a study led by the Yale School of Medicine and University of Alabama, Birmingham, found that the level of education and not race is the best predictor of who will live the longest. Not that longevity was on Willard's mind when she decided to go into nursing. She was living her life, and that life led her to San Francisco in 1958. I moved here in 1958 from New York, and I've lived here ever since. As a matter of fact, I've lived in this house for over 60 years. When I first moved here, there was a house right next door to me, and it was all white. And there were very, very few blacks, if any, in this area. And, of course, the woman in the next door wouldn't speak. She had no need for me whatsoever. But I wasn't afraid. I wasn't deterred. I bought the house, and I felt that it was my privilege to live here. That's the thing about Willard. She has spirit and determination. And just maybe... That has helped ward off the negative health impacts that can result from discrimination and racism. Willard isn't one to toot her own horn, but she was the first black director of nursing at a major San Francisco hospital. Instead of letting life weigh her down, Willard gets active. She went on to describe how her neighborhood has changed over the years and how she has stayed involved. The whole neighborhood has changed. It was at one time, what we call a love fest in the Haight-Ashbury district. Then the neighborhood changed to where it was just drugs, 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 and we were really very, very fearful for a while. Of course, it did produce a lot of good in a way because there was a clinic that was set up, the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, and I was on the board of directors at that clinic, and our goal was to try to help all of these youngsters that came our way, particularly those that were on drugs and those that was having mental breakdowns. So the clinic was really, really in need. And matter of fact, that clinic still exists right in the same spot at Clayton Street. In addition to her work with the clinic, Willard also volunteered and managed the local polling station. Well, matter of fact, the polling place at one time was right here in my garage. Of course, years and years ago, there was a polling tax. People had to pay to be able to go into the polling places. I remember well my aunt saving 25 cents to be able to go in and vote. So we've been involved with voting and recognizing how our forefathers fought and died in order for us to vote. I asked Willard if she thought that staying active was part of why she is 104 and still going strong. I truly believe that that is so. I don't want to be a mental loafer. 
I try to read books that's going to be of interest. I walk. I do water aerobics. I try to remember that the glass is half full instead of half empty. When I was 90 years old, I started taking piano lessons. So I've done that in order to keep at it. However, I am, again, going back to my faith. I truly, truly believe that the good Lord is using me as a conduit in order to give me love and joy and happiness to be able to pass it on, maybe a cup of strength to some other needy people. Community engagement, faith, optimism. All might help to explain how Willard has aged so remarkably. And there's another important factor, and that's friendships. There's a growing body of evidence that people need social connections to age well. So I asked Willard how she has managed to maintain friendships over the years. One of my motto is do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And I try that with all of my friends. I respect my friends. I listen without judging. If I promise something, I will do it or let you know why I cannot. And I think my friends feel that I am a person that they can come to with any kind of issues and problems. I often say I have a certificate in listening. And I think that is one of the reasons that my friends gravitate to me. Studies have shown that regular exercise and a healthy diet can reduce a person's risk of mortality. As a retired nurse, Willard was well aware of those benefits. I asked her whether she had focused on these healthy habits throughout her life. The answer is yes, and I may attribute that to being a nurse, but also to my family, because my family was always healthy eaters. We had chickens in the backyard. We had our own garden. We had a big old apple tree and a peach tree. My aunt used to do a lot of canning of tomatoes and peaches. So I've always been around healthy eating and, of course, water. We have water drinkers. And in fact, the first thing Willard did when we walked in the door for the interview was to fetch us glasses of water. And finally, I asked Willard for words of advice for those of us who are wondering what life might be like if we live to be 100 or older. I say, treat others the way you want to be treated. Avoid stress. Uh, one of my saying is, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Laugh a lot. We don't laugh enough. Of course, we laugh at today, which is good for our soul. It's good for our health. So I certainly advise laughter. Don't worry about what's going to be tomorrow, because really there is no tomorrow. When you stop and look at it, tomorrow is today. One of the things I do on a daily basis, I take about 30 minutes out of my day to be by myself. That is my 30 minutes because your day gets so full. Those are just a few of the things I throw out. <laughs> so much wisdom delivered with such a wonderful dose of laughter. That was Willard Harris, retired nurse, 
community volunteer, pianist, walker, and dear, dear friend to so many. We hope you enjoyed getting to know her and hearing how she's managed to remain so vibrant at the age of 104. This segment was produced with the support of a journalism fellowship from the Gerontological Society of America, the Journalist Network on Generations, and the Archstone Foundation. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. Join us next week when we'll sit down with Tony Platt to discuss his new book, The Scandal of Cal. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney. It was engineered by David Kwan. And D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.